Thanks, Pastor Mark, and good morning, Lighthouse Bible Church. Um, it is a joy and privilege to bring you God's word to you this morning, and I'm uh, really excited for what he has to say to us today. But before I, give, before I start, I just want to give a quick shout out to um, Antonio and Nadira, who got married yesterday. Uh, many of us were able to witness uh, this blessed event uh, whether live in person or through live stream. And uh, what a blessing and a joy it is for us as a church to see God's work in their lives, to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and also to bring them together as one under submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so let's, as a church, continue to be praying for them as they uh, walk this walk of faith together as one. Um, And so let's be committed to doing that for them. Well, it's been almost five months since this shelter-in-place began. And who of us could have imagined that we would be where we are today when this all started? Um, If we think back to just one year ago, the church was still meeting at Foothill College. Uh, Many of us had just uh, returned from serving at the special needs camp with Pastor Rick and our brothers and sisters at Grace Community Church. Um, The leadership of the church was going through the summer preaching series on the churches of Revelation. But here we are today, August 9th, 2020, in the middle of a global pandemic, and our lives are drastically different. Yet certain things remain the same. God is still God. He's reigning on his throne. Christ is still Lord. And he's building his church. And he will one day return, as he has promised in his word, to judge the world and to make all things right. And for those who have trusted wholly in the work of of salvation, his work of salvation, it will be a day of great rejoicing and celebration. And in the end, it will all be worth it. In the meantime, we understand that these last few months have been challenging. And the elders continue to pray for you, entrusting you to the sovereign care and protection of our Good Shepherd. Well, to begin our time together this morning... I want each of us to take a spiritual inventory, a spiritual inventory, to look back and to consider with all that has been happening in our lives and in the world, how we as the church of Christ have been doing. During this time of shelter in place, when opportunities to gather as a church and to serve formally in ministry have been limited, how has our prayer life been? How has our prayer life been? Have we been devoting more time to prayer or less? And I've been encouraged in talking to many of you how the Lord has been using this time to stretch your faith, to see your need for Him, and to grow in your dependence on Him. But let me ask, what have you been praying for? It's true that prayer is a window into our hearts. It reveals what we value 
And it reveals what we desire. That perhaps you've been praying for particular needs in your life. For your job or your career. For your marriage and parenting. For your health. Or for an important decision that you have to make. Or maybe you've been praying for this pandemic to be over. And for the church to be able to gather together once again. And we should be praying for God's favor. His provision and protection. Strength and wisdom. But in our prayers, do we solely focus on what is imminent, immediate, or temporal? Or do we prioritize the things that are of spiritual and eternal value? Do we pray for His desires to be fulfilled in and through us? Or for our will to be done? What about our evangelism? Right? By evangelism, I'm not talking about our summer short-term missions trip that many of you had applied for, whether as part of the sending team or the going team, until COVID-19 changed our plans. I'm not even talking about the VVS we had last month, which was primarily an evangelistic outreach to our children, and which was a huge encouragement and blessing to our church, as many of you poured your hearts into presenting the truth and grace of Christ to the kids. By evangelism, I'm not talking about the outreach ministries of our church, but about our hearts and about our prayers of evangelism. As this global pandemic continues with no end in sight, what concerns you the most? The challenges of having to homeschool our kids? That's us. The inconveniences of having to keep our social distance whenever we go out. The worries about your health or that of your family members. Or perhaps the lack of fellowship with other believers. But are we equally or more burdened by the sobering fact that hundreds of thousands around the world and counting have lost their lives during this pandemic and have entered into an eternity without Christ? Now, we can sit here and debate all day about how serious this coronavirus really is. Whether we should be wearing masks all the time or not at all. And we do need to address these matters as a church. But when we hear that growing statistic and understand from his word that it is appointed for all men to die. And after that comes judgment. How does it make us feel? Are we indifferent Or apathetic, burdened, or anxious? Do we long and pray for all men to come to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Or do we hang on to the hope that this pandemic will soon end? This morning, as we continue our series in 1 Timothy on God's high calling for gospel leadership, we're going to be looking at a portion of scripture that deals directly with the church's priority and mission. It is especially important at this time and in this place where there is so much confusion about what the church is that we come to understand from his word the purpose for which God created the church. God's plan for his church hasn't changed in 2,000 years. 
Whether we're a church of 30 people meeting in someone's home, as we started back in 2011, or a church of close to 200 presently scattered and isolated because of a global pandemic, Christ is still the head, and his commission for the church, our church, is the same. As Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose is about to celebrate our 10-year anniversary, we have countless reasons to thank the Lord for how he has sustained and grown our congregation. But at the same time, we have an opportunity to take a step back and evaluate whether we as a church have been fulfilling our responsibility to one another within the body, but also our calling to the world out of submission to the Lordship of Christ. And as we pursue gospel leadership in our home and in our church, my prayer is that the Lord would show each of us where we need to repent and where we need to grow as we seek to live out our faith in the days and weeks and months ahead. So as we come to our passage this morning, taken from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 8, we're going to see that gospel leadership is reflected in gospel-driven prayer. Gospel leadership is reflected in gospel-driven prayer. And that's the main point. And I've broken down this section of Scripture into three subpoints. First, the priority of gospel-driven prayer, the purpose of gospel-driven prayer, and the prerequisite for gospel-driven prayer. The priority, the purpose, and the prerequisite of gospel-driven prayer. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be reading the first eight verses. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me as we look to his word at this time? Lord God, we just humble ourselves before you. You are our king. You are in heaven. And we ask that you would magnify your son, Jesus Christ, and that you would sanctify your church, our church, through the preaching of your word. Would you help us to lay aside any distractions, confess any pride and sin in our hearts, so that we may receive your truth with meekness 
your word which is able to save and purify our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. The first point we see from our text is the priority of gospel-driven prayer. And the Apostle Paul begins this portion of his letter to Timothy with these words. First of all, then. And as a review from last week, the book of 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy in order to give instruction on how the church was to function and carry out its mission. In 1 Timothy 1, 3-7, the Apostle Paul urges Timothy to stay in Ephesus so that he might charge certain persons in the congregation not to teach a different doctrine and to get caught up in vain discussions. In particular, we see in verses 8-11 through 11, that there were those in the church who promoted a false gospel, teaching that salvation comes through adherence to the Jewish laws, form of legalism instead of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul had embraced. Verses 12 through 17. Having departed to Macedonia, Paul saw the necessity to encourage young Timothy as his spiritual father and mentor, to remain steadfast in his calling. He reminds Timothy that of all things, there was a dire need to protect the gospel of Christ and the doctrine of his word. When it comes to the truth of God, There can be no room for compromise. He charges Timothy not to back down to the mounting pressure from within the church, but to fight the good fight by guarding and upholding the priorities of the church that he had been entrusted with. So where does Paul begin? Verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, then. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Immediately following his charge to Timothy to wage the good warfare, in verse one, verse, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins by exhorting him to commit the church to regular prayer. But interestingly, it's not any type of prayer that the church is to prioritize. He writes supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Here in verse 1, Paul uses four similar but different words to describe the characteristic of prayer that should be lifted up for all people. The first is supplications. It refers to asking or begging or pleading based on a particular lack or need. And in this context, what do all people need or lack? Christ is salvation, the gospel, forgiveness of sins. And we are to pray earnestly for it. The second word on the list is prayers, which highlights the fact that we don't present our requests to just anyone to meet our needs, but to God himself. And we are to approach him with all humility and reverence. Next, we come to intercessions, which means to speak on behalf of someone else. The same word is used in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and Romans eight twenty six, where Christ as our great high priest and the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness, 
are said to be interceding for us. In the same way, we are to draw near to the Father in prayer, actively and intimately advocating for the salvation of all people. Finally, thanksgivings. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 commands us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. For that is God's will for us. Philippians 4, 6 says that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we are to let our requests be made known to God. Whether we are lifting our personal petitions to the Lord or making intercessions for others, prayer should always occur in the context of gratitude to God. So we are to pray urgently for all people, understanding their great need for salvation, supplications, identifying with and pleading on behalf of all men everywhere, intercessions, with reverence and humility before God, prayers, and to do so with nothing less than thanksgiving in our hearts. That's the kind of prayer that the church should be lifting up, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people. And that is to be a priority in the life of the church. Notice that the Apostle Paul calls the church to expand the scope of evangelistic prayer, to include all whom God desires to save. Not just those in our immediate circle, those with whom we share a common background, or those whom we might be inclined to naturally pray for. At the same time, he identifies a particular group for whom we are to pray. In verse 2, what does it say? For God and, sorry, for kings and all who are in high positions. For kings and all who are in high positions. It is because of the significant role they play and the influence they have on the church, especially in our desire to proclaim and live out the gospel, that we are to pray for those whom God has placed in positions of power and authority. That's what his word commands us to do. But what if these civil authorities are immoral, hypocritical, or even abusive? Opposed to God, his word, and his church? What if these government officials issue a shelter-in-place order, seek to impose an indefinite restriction on religious gatherings, and threaten to fine or arrest church leaders who do not comply. Well, what does the word of God say without exception? We are to pray for them, not for their impeachment or removal from office, not for their condemnation, but for their salvation. And in case you think that this would have been easier for the Ephesian church back then to obey than for us today, Remember that at the time Paul wrote this epistle to Timothy, the church was under the civil authority of an emperor by the name of Nero, under whose ruthless reign many Christians, including the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, 
were heavily persecuted and eventually martyred for their faith. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Was the instruction our Lord gave to his disciples and to us today. Yes, in the end, we as Christians are to obey God and not man. Acts 5.29 And we are not to hand over the authority God has given to the church, to the secular government. But that doesn't excuse us from praying for them. Rather, it places an even greater burden on the church as a priority to be praying for the salvation of all men and for those in positions of power and authority out of obedience to Christ. This has clear relevance to our situation today, doesn't it? It begs the following questions of us. How do our prayers measure up to God's standard for what he expects of his church? In light of all that's happening today, do we regularly pray for the salvation of all people? And no matter what you personally think of them, their political policies and their moral or ethical views, you pray for President Trump, for Governor Newsom, for House Speaker Pelosi, for our congressmen and women, for our judges, including those who serve on our highest Supreme Court, for our law enforcement, and for our military. Especially in our day and age, with all the chaos that surrounds us, what would it look like if Christians and churches took God at his word and prayed in this way? Rather than protesting on the streets, or getting caught up in fruitless discussions, speculations, political debates on social media. What would it look like if evangelistic prayer was a priority for Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose? If every member of this church, from the elders and deacons, to those who just recently became members this year, but especially the men of this church, those whom God has called to gospel leadership in the home and in the church, What if we were committed to praying regularly in this way? In the context of our passage, this is to be a priority whenever the church gathers together on Sundays. But what if, by extension, we prayed in this way in our small groups, during our family devotions, and in our personal prayer life? What impact would it have on our lives, on our community, and our world? Well, verse 2 tells us the desired effect it will have on the church. It says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The word for peaceful here refers to our internal attitude of the heart. While quiet refers to the external circumstances around us. As we pray in this way, The goal is that the church would experience peace and freedom from turmoil, both within and without, that allows our lives of faith to be put on display as we walk circumspectly in the world, godly in the sight of God, dignified before all men, and above reproach. Now, this does not mean that we live a sheltered life 
free from persecution. And it certainly doesn't mean that for the sake of peace, we don't stand boldly for the truth of God when the government tries to shut us up. In John 15, 20, Jesus reminds his disciples that a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted him, they will also persecute them. However, when persecution comes upon us, it should not be for the godly and dignified lives we lead, but because of the gospel we proclaim. For we know that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. But it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. Therefore, when persecution arises, we must pray all the more that the power of God would so transform our lives that through gospel praying and godly living, we might direct all people to God our Savior through the proclamation of the gospel. So we see in verses 1 to 2 the urgency and the priority of gospel-driven prayer that is to be for all people and for those in positions of power and authority. That is our first point this morning. Next, in verses 3 through 7, we come to the purpose of gospel-driven prayer. The purpose of gospel-driven prayer in the life of the church. Look with me at verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Here, we start to see the reasons why the church should be praying for the salvation of all people. Simply stated... Such evangelistic prayer glorifies our saving God. Such evangelistic prayer glorifies our saving God. The Greek word for good here, kalos, emphasizes the idea of something being intrinsically good or morally right. Not just good for its effects or its results. Now, we all know through experience that prayer brings about many good things. Benefits, favors, blessings, and answers to prayer. And these good things come from the giver of every good and perfect gift, who is God. And we can affirm that to be true, even though the charlatans of the prosperity gospel might use this statement for their own end. But evangelistic prayer for all people is good in and of itself. And not only good, but also pleasing to God. This is because as Christ taught us in the Lord's Prayer, which Pastor Mark just read for us this morning, and as he exemplified for us on the night before his crucifixion, the purpose of prayer is not to get our will be done in heaven, but for his will to be done on earth. The purpose of prayer is not to get our will to be done in heaven, but his will to be done on earth. So when we pray in complete dependence on him, in accordance to his will, we align and conform our desire to his. And that, in its very nature, is good. And it is pleasing 
in the sight of God our Savior. So what is God's expressed desire? Verses 3 through 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Implied in this verse is the reality that all people everywhere need to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is our greatest need, every one of us. We are lost and sinful, in need of rescue under the wrath of God. All our troubles in this life are due to the fact that we are sinners and that every man is out for himself. And that's not hard to see in our society today. And we all stand guilty before a holy and omniscient God who does not turn a blind eye on our sin, but judges us according to his perfect and righteous standards. As Hebrews 4.13 tells us, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But the good news of the gospel is that God our Savior desires all people to be saved through the knowledge of the truth. And that is a message of incredible hope. Listen to the emphasis of these God-breathed words. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ezekiel 18.23 and 32 Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn or repent and live. 1 Timothy 4.10 For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. One we're very familiar with, John 3.16 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The irrefutable fact is that it is not God's desire for some to be saved and others to be condemned. And it is not God's desire to save just Jews or only those who adhere to the Mosaic law as the false teachers in the Ephesian church claimed. The testimony born through the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation is that God's plan of salvation from the very beginning has always been to bless all the people of the earth and to save people from every nation. It is for this very reason that the church ought to pray for the salvation of all people. Because God, our God, desires all men, Jews and Gentiles, to come to saving faith through his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the abounding and inclusive love of God. And according to this verse, how is one to be saved as our God so desires? 
Not through some mystical or nebulous experience. Not through the reciting of a sinner's prayer. Not by coming forward in response to an altar call. But by what? By coming to the knowledge of the truth. And as we continue reading, we see what this definite truth is. The truth of the gospel that God calls all people to believe by faith in order to be saved. Verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's worth noting where this gospel truth begins. Unlike most modern preaching, it begins not with man, but with who? With God. It says, for there is one God. The reason he desires all people to be saved, and the reason we ought to pray for the salvation of all people, is because he is the one true God. And there is no other. We see this affirmed through the Old and New Testament as he has revealed himself to us in his word. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Ephesians 4, 6. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. What's the right response to this truth? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Isaiah 45, 5 and 22. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And why? For I am God and there is no other. Finally, Romans 3, 29 through 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The truth of the Bible is that there are not many gods, but one. And as the only God, he is the God of all people, not just of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. It is because there is one God who deserves and demands wholehearted, exclusive worship from people everywhere that the global mission of the church is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. As John Piper would put it, Missions exists because worship doesn't. And it is because there is one God of all who desires to save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that the church is called to pray earnestly and regularly for the salvation of all people. Continuing in verse 5, the Apostle Paul moves from one God who desires all people to be saved to one mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all. And with this, we see to an even greater extent the absolute necessity of the church's gospel mission and the purpose 
of gospel-driven prayer. Now, one might say to Paul at this point, especially someone living in our pluralistic society today, I take, that what, I take what you're saying, Paul. I grant that there is only one God. But why shouldn't this one God, who desires all to be saved, save them in different ways? Some by good works, others by religious service or observances, and still others through another religion. Why make such a big fuss, insist that all people be saved in the same way and by coming to the knowledge of the same truth? To which Paul's response is, there is not only one saving God, but also one mediator between God and man, and therefore only one way of salvation. Here, the Apostle Paul echoes the words of Christ himself, who in John 14, 6 said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also echoes these words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, who standing before the Jewish elders and scribes boldly proclaims, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So while the truth of the gospel is universal in scope, in that the message is made available to all people, it is at the same time exclusive in the sense that there is no other way to be saved. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Here in verses 5 and 6, we see two unique aspects of Christ that qualifies him to be the only mediator between God and men. First, We see the person of Christ. Paul writes, the man Christ Jesus, which can be translated literally Christ Jesus himself, man, highlighting his humanity. In his incarnation, Jesus Christ, the living word, who was in the beginning with God and was God, through whom all things were made and in whom was life, that very word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1. Galatians 4, 4-5 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. As one author put it, The Son of God became a man, to enable men to become sons of God. And in order for Christ to serve as our mediator, for him to be able to adequately represent us as fallen humanity to God the Father, he had to be fully man and fully God. Both his deity and humanity are affirmed in the scripture and absolutely unique to the person of Jesus Christ. And not only that, According to the scripture, Christ was the perfect, the sinless son of man. Right? Hebrews 4.15 talks about Jesus being our great high priest, who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he, referring to Christ, committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, talking about this great exchange that took place at the cross, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we see first the perfect person of Christ in this verse, which qualifies him to be the one mediator between God and men. But we also see in the following verse a reference to the perfect work of Christ. The perfect work of Christ, which is equally essential. This is the salvific work for which Christ took on humanity. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16 Christ is the good shepherd in John chapter 10 who laid down his life for his sheep. According to Philippians 2, 7 through 8, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just as with his incarnation, Christ's death on the cross was proof of his self-sacrificial love. And may we never forget, may we always appreciate the infinite cost that was paid for our redemption. However, his death was not only sacrificial, it was also substitutionary. And we see that in the word ransom. Now, this word ransom, it's not a word that we typically use in our day-to-day vocabulary. But what comes to mind when you hear it? Ransom. Maybe a scene from a Netflix movie that you've recently watched where a hijacking or kidnapping takes place and the bad guys demand a large sum of money to be paid for the release of the hostages. Well, in the original language, the common word for ransom Litron means the price paid for the release of a captive. And it's the same idea you or I might think of when we hear the word ransom. But that's not the Greek word that Paul uses here. He uses the word anti-Lutron. He adds a very significant preposition, anti, in front of it. And what it does, it is that it adds this element of a substitutionary ransom. It's not the picture of a father who sells his home, his car, his yacht, liquidates his entire retirement fund, gives up all his assets and possessions, even the shirt on his back, to rescue his kidnapped child. No, it's so much greater than that. It's as if a father who receives the ransom note about his child, goes and offers his own life to be taken in exchange for the release of his beloved son or daughter. That's the love of our Savior. And that's what Christ did for us when he said of himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as the perfect God-man 
whose sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross paid our ransom, Jesus Christ is the only and all-sufficient mediator. No one else possesses or has possessed the necessary qualifications to mediate between holy God and sinful man. And according to verses 6 and 7, that is the testimony given at the proper time. And the truth for which Paul was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. That is also what Paul urges Timothy to uphold and defend in the church, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that is the confession we, as a church of Jesus Christ, must teach and proclaim for the salvation of all people. Before we look at the final point for this morning, let me draw one point of application for us. I don't think anyone here at Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose, struggles with believing that there is one God or that there is one mediator. And if you do struggle with that, come talk to us or to one of your Logos small group leaders afterwards. But if we're honest with ourselves, there is a gap that exists between our knowledge and our application, between our theology and our theopraxis, between our doctrine and our living. If you've been following up to this point in the text, The Apostle Paul connects the dots very clearly for us. There's a natural flow to his argument, and it is this. If you and I truly affirm the truth of the gospel, that there is one God who desires to save all mankind through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, and we have received such wondrous mercy, it should compel us to respond in urgent prayer for the salvation of all people, including those in positions of authority and power. Because that is the desire and that is the heart of compassion of God, our Savior. So the question is, what's missing in our lives? Why do you and I often fail to pray in this way? Now, we may come up with various explanations for our struggle. Maybe we've been mired in worldliness. We lack compassion for others. We fail to see all of life as spiritual warfare. But as we come to the scripture and see the gospel's effect in the life of Apostle Paul, we get to the heart of the matter. In the previous chapter, starting in verse 12, Paul recounts his personal testimony. Just listen closely. 1 Timothy 1, 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners of whom I was the foremost. Is that what it says? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. For the apostle Paul, the gospel was ever before him. Paul didn't merely see himself as the chief of sinners when he was radically converted on the road to Damascus. He lived and preached and served with an abiding sense of himself as the chief of sinners who had received mercy. Even as a mature believer toward the end of his life, after much success, suffering, and persecution in the gospel ministry. Only one who appreciates and applies the gospel to his own life can say in Acts 20, verse 24, I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to himself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Only one who finds his confidence and contentment in the mercy of God, can know the anguish of heart and the compassion of Christ for all people. So much so that in Romans chapter 9, verse 2 through 3, he wished that he would be accursed and cut off from Christ. Why? For the sake of his fellow man. Brothers and sisters, do we view our present life in light of the mercy of God? Is the gospel as precious to you today as the day the Lord first opened your eyes to believe in it? Do we simply know it or do we cherish it? Does the gospel drive every aspect of our lives from our jobs to our marriages to our parenting to our prayers and to our ministry? As we watch the news or read about the current state of our world, do we see ourselves as chief among sinners. And say with Paul. But by the grace of God. I am what I am. And on account of his grace. That is at work in our lives. Do we labor for the sake of the gospel. Praying for the salvation of all people. For kings and all. Who are in high positions. Do we appreciate. And do we apply. The gospel to our lives. Daily. This leads us to our final point for this morning. The prerequisite of gospel-driven prayer. The prerequisite of gospel-driven prayer. And we see that in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In the NASB translation, it starts out, Therefore, therefore in response to the glorious message of the gospel, the Apostle Paul calls the church to evangelistic prayer, just as he did at the beginning of this section. But this time, he calls upon the men of the church to lead in prayer. 
So men, are you listening? Paul will address the ladies in a week's time when Garrett preaches on the next section starting in verse 9. But this is God's high calling for the men of this church, for gospel leadership. In the life of the church, it is to be the men who lead in public worship. And we are to prioritize praying for the salvation of the lost. But simply being male doesn't qualify us for this calling. There's also an attitude that should accompany those who pray. Look at the second half of verse 8. It says, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The point Paul is making here is not that we must lift our hands in the air when we pray. It's not about the position of our hands, but about the purity of our hearts. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? On the heart. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that whoever prays ought to be the kind of person who is living a holy life. And that's what it means to be praying and lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Psalm 24, 3-4 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he's the one who can enter into God's holy presence. 1 Peter 3.12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Proverbs 15.29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. But how does such a man come to be? What makes a man righteous so that the Lord would hear his prayers? What qualifies the man of God to pray with holy hands and at the same time compels him to pray for the salvation of all people? It's none other than the saving and sanctifying gospel of Jesus Christ. Men, we need to humbly ask ourselves, and I need to ask myself, but also our roommates, our wives, and our children. As those whom God has called to gospel leadership, Does holiness characterize our lives? Are we bearing fruit in the truth of the gospel that accords with godliness? Or do we struggle with anger, quarreling, or some other habitual besetting sin? We may have a grasp of the gospel and a firm knowledge of its truth. But the bigger question is, does the gospel have a grasp Of our life. That is the prerequisite for gospel driven prayer. Well, in conclusion, this morning we saw from 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 8, that God's high calling for gospel leadership in the church and in the home is to be manifested in gospel driven prayer. Evangelistic prayer. For all people is to have a priority in the life of our church. It is to reflect the purpose of the gospel for which God our Savior has called us to pray. And the prerequisite is for godly men to be the ones to lead in prayer 
as the gospel has its transformative effect on our lives. This is all deeply connected to the primary mission of the church, which is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose for which Christ set up the church, he himself being the head, to carry out the great commission under his supreme authority. That is the reason the church was called out of the world, but left in it to reach the lost. And that is why Paul in this letter gives Timothy instructions for how the church is to be conducted. To install elders and deacons, to teach sound doctrine, to guard against error, to exercise church discipline. Also, that the church would be distinct and holy. The gospel made visible to the world at large. And so, first of all then, let prayers be lifted up for people everywhere. Why? Because the primary task and function of the church is not to bring about social justice or political change, but it's to testify to the world of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. May Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose be all that he calls us to be, as the gospel invades every area of our lives and molds us into the image of his beloved son. And may he help us to shine brightly the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to this dark world that so desperately needs to come to the knowledge of this truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have just heard from your word. And we are humbled to know your love for your own. That you would send your only son, Jesus Christ. Perfect God, perfect man. To be the ransom for us. To exchange his perfect life for our wretched one. Go to the cross to die, suffer, bear the wrath of sin for us. Lord, the gospel is good news, not just on the day we believe, but it's good news for us today. It's the only news that can save all people, all nations. And we have been entrusted to deliver what we have received to those who might hear. Lord, that is a high calling. It is one that we know is born out of your mercy for us. And so, Lord, would you transform our lives through the power of the gospel, make us those who would represent you to this world. May it lead us to make prayer, evangelistic prayer, a priority in our lives, in our homes, in our church, all for the sake of your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.